Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, Genesis chapter 9, in verses 1 through 7. You know, we're going to be um, talking about a topic, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever preached a full sermon um, on this topic as it relates to it. I don't really have a reason why that uh, that is not the case. I've made allusions to it in various sermons, but never have I taken the opportunity to talk about um, the, 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 the concept of abortion um, and why, as I, I titled this sermon, Preborn Lives Matter, which is not true in this country that we live in. Preborn lives don't matter matter to some of us, but it doesn't matter to all of us. I, uh, over the years, I have developed an increasingly, um, I guess, indignation toward this whole concept that's going on. Uh, it's something I've always thought was evil and wrong, but for whatever reasons, it doesn't seem like it has risen to um, something that I've really given just a whole lot of thought about. And I think the reason is, is probably the same reason that many of you haven't, is because it's, um, in this society, we have been conditioned to think that this is an acceptable behavior. Um, from our news media, from our government, from the television shows that we watch, that this is just a normal part of behavior, and there's really not anything wrong with it, and so even though we know in our minds, in our hearts, and from what the text says, that abortion, or as I'm going to be calling it for the rest of his sermon, the murder of babies is wicked and evil. Um, when we think about the word holocaust, we always think about what happened in the 30s and the 40s in Germany where 6 million Jews were exterminated. And so that, that's typically, when you look up that word holocaust, that's, that's immediately where it goes to. But when you look up the word in the dictionary, it is the destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. Destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. And so since 1973, with the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, over 60 million preborn babies have been destroyed and slaughtered. That's a mass scale. That is a, an incredible atrocity. And it's amazing that we think that we're not much different in this society than Nazi Germany. And yet, every day, every 34 seconds, a baby is killed. And by the end of this sermon, or the end of this service, you know, they're talking you know, um, 100 an hour. So, you know, by the end of the service, there's going to be many babies that are going to be killed, murdered. And when I say 60 million, that's on the low end, because that's not including the pills that are being taken to end life, nor does it include um, states like California, Maryland and New Hampshire, who do not give statistics on this, this concept. So I've, I've chosen today, and I've, I've never done this before. I've never, we've, I've never 
push the church to observe this for whatever reason. I don't know. But today is um, been set aside as the Sanctity of Life Sunday. And our denomination recognizes it. Southern Baptists recognize it. Various other denominations that believe the Bible and believe in the sanctity of life have recognized. In fact, it actually came from President Ronald Reagan, who issued a proclamation in 1984 designating the third Sunday in January as the Sanctity of Human Life Day. And the presidents that believe in the sanctity of life have observed it. Those that do not, they don't observe it. This has probably been in the forefront in the news. Maybe you've been paying attention to what's been going on, especially as this past summer with the Supreme Court decision um, to overturn Roe v. Wade and basically sending the question of abortion to the states. So no longer is it a, a legal concept federally. Now it's left up to the states to determine whether they think it's legal to murder our children or not. So now there's some good news in this, in, the, in this uh, case. I think there's some light in this, is that 13 states have banned the murder of babies, which includes our state, which I'm thankfully for. But babies are still being murdered in 37 states. Eight of those states, including New York City, have codified the murder of babies up to birth. Just let that sink in for a moment, up to birth. So seconds, minutes, hours, matter whether this is designated as human life or not. In fact, just this week, the Minnesota House passed a bill granting the murder of babies through all nine months of pregnancy via any method for any reason with no age restrictions. Now, there's even been conversation about this after birth, whether this can happen after birth. It's, it's amazing that I actually remember a time in my lifetime where it was Heatly, uh, strongly debated regarding third trimester abortions, and you know how revolting this idea was that in the third trimester that you could have an abortion. And now we're actually debating, well, really not debating, that in some states it's legal up to birth, and there's maybe even debate of whether this is something that could even happen after birth. So. I think this is an issue that we need to really think about as a church and we need to consider. And I want to be very clear about this. This is not a political issue at all. It may be for politicians, but it's not for us as Christians. This is a moral issue. It's a biblical issue, and it's an issue that's rooted in the very heart of God, who is life, who gives life, who sustains life. And only God has the right to determine when life ends. And so this is a very biblical issue. This is a very moral issue. And I will say, go as far as to say, that this is the most pressing issue of our day. We are living in a time, and we have sanctified this whole concept. It's, it's out of mind, out of sight. We don't see it. So we don't see our children being lined up or being put in concentration camps. So we don't, we don't think about it. So this has been regulated to a medical issue. In fact, this is how it's talked about, health care for women, uh, abortion doctors, clinics, hospitals, these kinds of things. So it's been sanitized. This is an atrocity. This is evil. This is wicked. This is an affront against God. And it's an affront against 
us as human beings because these are our fellow image bearers that are being killed. Innocent, defenseless, helpless, can't do anything for themselves. And they're being murdered. For what? Inconvenience. Imposition. And whatever reason people can dream up of. Now, I was, um, just a few months ago, when we had our 75th, we had a lot of food left over. And so Eli, who catered our food, told me that, you know, usually churches will give it to pregnancy crisis centers. Well, we had a, a pregnancy crisis center here in town called Choices, but it had been shut down. So I got on Google to find out if there's one, another one, maybe one in Fort Smith that I, I could take all this food to. So as I got on Google and searched for a pregnancy crisis center, the second thing that I saw when I typed in pregnancy crisis center, the second thing was Planned Parenthood. With the website, abortionfinder.org. So in my mind, I'm thinking about these women who are going through a crisis of maybe an unwanted pregnancy or something of that nature. They're looking And at the top of it, they're confronted with Planned Parenthood and whether to take these babies to this wicked organization and to have their babies murdered. Um, And it's it's an issue that is very pressing in our, our, our country, and I think it's an issue that we need to think about as a church and we need to reevaluate where we are and what we think about this issue and what we can do as a church and what we, um, what we believe about this whole, whole concept. This last week, I received a letter of a, from an organization called the Society of Biblical Literature. It's a scholarly organization, not one that I'm a member of because of their liberal leanings on various issues. But they sent a letter to all their members, and I got a hold of it, and it says, our annual meeting this year is scheduled to take place in San Antonio, Texas. We know that some of our members are understandably concerned about the politics and policies of the state of Texas and may wonder whether we will move the SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, annual meeting to a different location. We are writing to let you know that while we are acutely aware and concerned about issues that impact the rights of all of our members, council cannot change venues for this annual meeting. Uh, well, the council does have a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that SBL will continue to exist, pursue its mission of fostering biblical scholarship across disciplinary and geographic boundaries. It is important to emphasize that our consideration on the matter is not singular financial. Not only are there a limited number of states in the United States of America where we would not face similar issues in this increasingly polarized sexual, political climate, but political landscapes also change suddenly and drastically. Moreover, SBL members of different political persuasions both live and work in San Antonio and other parts of Texas. Instead of wanting SBL to stay away from their city and their state, we have heard from a variety of members who would like our annual meeting to take place as planned so more people can engage the issues, provide support as they continue to work for the well-being of San Antonio and of Texas. Now, I want you to listen to this paragraph. As a society, SBL aspires to be engaged critically and respectfully of different kinds of academic and religious discourse. We respect your decision if you think it is best for you to skip San Antonio meeting so that you will not be spending your money in Texas. 
We also know that members with health and safety concerns, especially pregnancy-related concerns because of Dobbs, have to exercise caution to make sure that they will not put themselves at risk. In other words, the state of Texas is one of those states that bans abortion. And so they're writing to their members that we know that you're concerned about this issue. We also know that members with health and safety concerns, especially pregnancy-related concerns because of Dobbs, have to exercise caution to make sure they will not put themselves at risk. But to say it in other words, in case you come down to this SBL meeting and you need an abortion, you're not going to be able to find it. And that's a concern. Which I don't understand. The, the, the conception of that and the logic of that is just mind-boggling to me. Somebody is going to travel down to, S, uh, to San Antonio to go to this meeting, and they're just going to need a convenient place for an abortion somewhere. Now, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, that's the Society of Biblical Literature. And so this, this touches on all areas of thought for us to think about. Now, before we actually look at this text, I, I want us to, to see where, where we're at and what's going on here in our society, in our world. Is that there's a distinction that's clearly being made regarding a biblical worldview of life. There is a value of life for that which is differently, which is different than how the Bible defines it. In the current secular society, in our current worldview, there is a value for certain kinds of life. Not the value of all human life, but the value of certain kinds of life. And this worldview finds its origins in Darwinism. The theory of evolution which equivocates humanity to the level of any living organism. We're not any different than any, any other uh, living organism because we were at one time a single-cell organism that evolved to where we are now. So consequently, since there is only certain kinds of life that are value, then human life can be easily discarded. So currently in our country, there's no value for the life of preborn. The personhood, dignity, and the value of preborn are reduced to such a degree that can be easily discarded and reduced to nothing more than a choice, or to say it even another way, to resort to an issue of women's health care. As we're going to think about this issue, we're going to note that all human life is sacred and made in the image of God, whether they have different ethnic backgrounds, whether they have special needs, whether they are elderly, or whether they are preborn. So let's look at our text this morning, and let's extract this biblical worldview on the dignity of life and make some connections here to the life of the preborn and why they matter. So begin verse 1, it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast, and I will require it from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, you shall be fruitful, multiply, 
and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So of all of creation, humanity is God's crowning achievement. And the reason is, it's for they are created in the image of God. In fact, we find this in the text, the reference to uh, humanity in the image of God in verse 6 takes the reader back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And I want to read that so you can get the feel of it and what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and of all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And the similar as we read in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 9, we see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the prominence of the creation of humanity as we see from Genesis chapter 1, is noted in several ways. And I think it's important for us to, to think about that since this is what is found here in Genesis 6. They're created in the image of God. So let's just think about what it means to be created in the image of God, why it's important, what makes us different from all of the created being. So let's look at several ways that we find this in a creation narrative. Number one, the creation count shows an ascending order of significance with human life as the final, thus pinnacle act of creation. So God creates everything, creates the skies, creates the star, creates the land, creates the water, creates the animals, and then at his final act of creation, he creates man and he creates woman. His pinnacle act of creation, what sets it apart from all of the other created things. Number two, of the creative acts, this is the only one that's preceded by self-deliberation, which I think is extremely significant as we understand what it means to be created in the image of God. When God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So the, the idea of let us thinks about God in his plurality. God is a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is going to create man in such a way that reflects that aspect of him being a relational being. So of all the creation, of all the created things, only with the creation of man and woman is there a self-deliberation between the triune Godhead. Number three, the expression, let us, replaces the impersonal words spoken in the previous creation act. Remember the repetition of the words of all the other creation acts. Act. Let there be. And now the creation of man is separated. Not let there be, but let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Man and women alone are said to mirror the creator of God. That's number four, created image of God. Number five, three times in Genesis 1 and verse 27, it is noted that God created them. Just repeating it over and over again. God created them. Number six, the event is given a far longer description than any other creative acts. And number seven, unlike the animals who are said to come from the ground, 
Mankind is referred to only as a direct creation from God. There is exquisite care in how God created man. He fashioned him out of the dust and he breathed into him the breath of life. There's this personal attentiveness in the way that God created humanity, which hopefully we'll see here in a minute, how that actually mirrors God's reflection of the creation of the child in the womb. It's a co-creative act. And the language that is used in the biblical text as it relates to the, the child in the womb and how the child is created actually mirrors that of creation. And returning back to Genesis 9, when we think about the image of God, it's further accentuated by the prohibition of taking human life. This is set in the context of how man is to relate to life in general, including animals. There's even value placed on the life of an animal in this text. There's stipulation and how and for what reason he can kill an animal. There's a permission to eat animals for food and a prohibition for eating an animal while yet still alive, thinking about the concept of the blood that is mentioned here in the text. Another divine directive is given in verse 5 of chapter 9, this time with regard to human life. Human life must be treated with special caution. The taking of human life is an offense against God, and retribution follows. If you will notice in verse 5, three times God says, I will demand or I will require. Now notice at least two times this retribution is required of man. And the first is a reference to man. It is generic, man in a general, or mankind. And in the second is personal. In fact, my translation reads, every man's brother. Some translations read fellow man, and others just human being. So if you'll notice there in that, uh, that text in verse 5, um, it says, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So there's an emphasis here. There's something that the writer of Genesis, Moses, is trying to get us to pay attention to. So I think it's more accurately expressed as every man's brother. This word first occurred in Genesis chapter 4. So this prohibition echoes the first human murder. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And Cain's response was, am I my brother's keeper? And this text actually answers Cain's question with an explicit yes. Murder is the ultimate violation of the brother relationship with one's fellow man. So not only is the murder an effacing of the image of God, taking that which only God alone can take, not only is it an assault and is a front against God, but it's an ultimate violation also of the brotherly relationship with one's fellow man, what it means to be creating humans of God. Not only are we to be relational beings with God, but also to be relational in the context with one another. Verse 6 restates verse 5 with a theological foundation because the taking of human life, murder, strikes at the image of God. It is forbidden unconditionally. God is the creator, not just of humanity, but each individual human being and has endowed each human being with personhood and the ability to live a personal relationship with other humans. Every murder confronts God. It is a direct and unbridled revolt against God. God alone has the right to give life and to take life. And the killing that 
which is creating the image of God and immensely valuable to God is tantamount to disregarding God himself. So hopefully from this text and from thinking about being the idea of being created in the image of God, that every person is endowed with a personhood. They're all valuable. And they're valuable because they are created in God's image. Now, I think it's important from this point for us to establish the personhood of the preborn. To establish the concept that the preborn are created in the image of God. So, what does the Bible specifically say about the personhood of the preborn? The argument from secular mainstream society is that the embryo isn't a baby, it's just tissue or a product, conception, and potential life, or that the embryo. And fetus is, is not human in any way or shape. So some will say that it's not human. Some will actually say that it is human, but it's not yet a person. The Bible never says anything directly about the personhood of the preborn or about the concept of, of abortion. And the reason for this is there's no reason to. It is understood that the preborn. And it's created in the image of God. And I'm assuming that if we ask the question to Moses, we ask the question to any biblical writer, they would be incredulous as to why it is even posed. Of course the preborn is created in the image of God. Why would we even ask that question? Listen, I really want to be very clear about some of our interpretive decisions is that we don't mistake the Bible's silence on a matter for permission. So just because the Bible doesn't specifically say that abortion is evil does not mean that the Bible doesn't unilaterally say when you read it from cover to cover and think about the concept biblically and with biblical wisdom that it is clear that the Bible teaches that this behavior is evil and it's wicked. I do not do very well when people try to find permission in what the Bible doesn't say. Because what that means is that they want to act in this behavior and they're just going to do it. And so the reason that it doesn't, there's not chapter one, chapter two, verses, you know, three through whatever that says abortion is wrong is because there is this assumption that the Bible is operating under that all of life is precious. All of life is created in the image of God. And that even means the preborn. I mean, we don't have any distinctions in the Bible about whether special needs children are created in the image of God. We don't have any distinctions whether the elderly are created in the image of God. It doesn't specifically say that, that at this period of life, their life matters too. We assume that because it's life. It's human life. So the Bible operates under a presupposition that all of life is precious and created in the image of God. And there are clear biblical reasons for this understanding. Something that is typically not mentioned or overlooked is, I, I think, is the view of the barren women in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When there is conception in the womb of a barren woman, it is equivalent to bringing death to life. In fact, in Hannah's song, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in verses 5 through 6, she describes a woman who is childless and gives birth and then adds, the Lord brings death 
and gives life. So Hannah, who was unable to conceive children, she prayed and she asked and she begged of God, give me a child. And when God gave her a child, she said, this is life. That child was conceived in her. She understood that as God brought life into her dead womb. There was life there. The writer of Hebrews describes Sarah's womb as good as dead. But God gave life to the womb. So if the attitude of the Old Testament is New Testament to describe the burying womb as death, how do you think it views conception, embryos, and fetuses? It views them as life. So I think that's something that I've never heard anybody talk about, but I think it is warranted in this discussion of when life begins and why the preborn life is created in the image of God. The Old Testament does affirm that children are a gift and a blessing from God, and it regards the killing of children with a special horror. Significantly, the Old Testament sees God as active in the creation of human beings from the time of conception. It is God who brings conception in the cases of barren women. This demonstrates that the birth is considered a co-created process involving man, woman, and God. And the author of Psalms, uh, Psalm 139 in verses 13 through 6, it describes God's creative work in the womb and it mirrors the creation of man and woman. I want you just to turn there with me and I want us to see these words with our own eyes and how he describes, how God describes this conception, this, this, this child that's in the womb of a, babe, of, a, of a woman. So Psalm 139 and verses 13 through 16. But notice here what the, what the text says. But begin verse 13. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. So think about this. When did God form? You formed my parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eye saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. There are elements and there are words in here that actually mirrors the, 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 the it kind of gives this idea of this exquisite care that is mirrored in the creation account of God creating man and woman. The, the personal aspect of it. God is intentionally involved in it. So that's why I said earlier that not only did God create man and woman in general, but he's created all individually. This is what our God has done. In fact, Job uses similar languages, a similar language in Job 10 and verses 8 through 12 when he says, your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together 
with bones and sinews. Did he, and it goes on, uh, did he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? That's what Job says. So while it is only recently that we were able to see, that we are able to see what takes place in the womb, the psalmist, along with the writer of Job, tells us that the sovereign creator, God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has seen from the very first moment everything that takes place in the womb. And not only has he seen it, he himself has fashioned it. We also find that the Old Testament's profound respect for the unborn is noted in the Mosaic Law. The one who harms the preborn child in his mother's womb must be punished. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, and wound for wound. The Old Testament view of the preborn is unchanged in the New Testament. In fact, there is much that can be said in the birth narrative of Luke and its implications for the personhood of the unborn. Do you remember who was the first person to praise our Savior? Who was it? John the Baptist when? In the womb. He leaped with joy. What do you think that says about personhood? and about being created in the image of God. But I think it's significant that the same word used for Elizabeth unborn or preborn child in Luke chapter 1 and verses 41 and also in verse 44, which is translated as babe, is used of the newborn baby, Jesus, in chapter 12 and verse 12. And for that matter, of the children that were brought to be blessed by Jesus, in the Gospels. So the, it, it intentionally uses the same word to describe John the Baptist in the womb. He's a babe. Jesus, who is born, is a babe. And then the children that Jesus gathered in his arms, the same word is used to describe them. No distinction at all. They're the same. Now, we can go on and, and talk about this as far as the biblical revelation is concerned, about what the text actually says about the preborn created in the image of God. But I want us to turn our attention also to what natural revelation tells us. God has created, and from his creation, these things can be seen. Not only is personhood established and detects itself special revelation from God, but even natural revelation, when we observe the nature of the preborn in the womb, I think it establishes their personhood without qualifications. Let me, let me give you just a few things. There's only one objective point for any human being for when their life begins. Only one point at which there was a person a moment ago and now there is not. And that point is conception. The newly fertilized egg becomes a distinct living organism containing an incredible amount of genetic information sufficient to control the individual's life, growth, and development for his or her entire life. Just their genome, what's written in their DNA, is sufficient for their whole very life, even at conception. The cells of a new individual divide and they multiply rapidly, resulting in phenomenal growth. Growth occurs because life exists. Between five and nine days after conception, 
the new person burrows into the wombs wall for safety and nourishment. There in these days, gender can be determined. Two weeks after this, discernible human features are formed, and three weeks after that, they're obvious. At just 18 days, the heart is forming and eyes start to develop. By day 21, the heart pumps blood through the body. Day 28, the baby has budding arms and legs. Day 30, a brain and has multiplied in size 10,000 times. By day 35, the mouth, ears, and nose are taking shape. Day 40, the child's brain waves and heartbeat, which began three weeks earlier, can be detected by an ultrasonic stethoscope. Day 42, the skeleton is formed and the brain is controlling the movement of muscles. By eight weeks, hands and feet are almost perfectly formed. At nine weeks, movements such as somersault, backflip, kicking is perfected. At this time, the child responds to stimuli and may even feel pain. I think that's important. That even at that early moment, this child may feel pain. By 10 weeks, the child squints, swallows, frowns, and by 11 weeks makes a wide variety of facial expression, including a smile. By 12 weeks, the child turns his feet, curling and fanning his toes, makes fists, moves thumbs, bends wrists, and opens mouth. All of this happens in the first trimester, the first three months of life. This is not a mass of cells, but a living, growing being created in the image of God. In fact, to talk about the, un- the preborn as a fetus or an embryo means it is just another stage of life. Like an infant, a child, a teenager, an adult. So it's not a term to determine whether they're just a, a-, a clump of blob or something. It's a t- span of their life. That's what they are at that moment. Just like a- when they're born, they're going to be an infant. When they grow, they're going to be a toddler. Then they'll be a child. Then they'll be a teenager. Then they'll be a grown adult. So the unborn, beginning at conception, is a person created in the image of God. And the ending of life is murder. The shedding of man's blood created in the image of God. And there are consequences for this act according to Genesis chapter 9 and verses 5 through 6, which God requires the life of a person who sheds another person's life. These are, these are consequences. In fact, we find three times in verse 5 that God said, I will require the life of a man. And in verse 6, if, if 6, if one sheds man's blood by that man, his blood shall be shed. So, 60 million babies, blood, has been shed in this country since 1973. And as I mentioned, that's on a very low end since California, Maryland, and New Hampshire do not report. And there's no way to determine how many have been killed by an FDA-approved pill that now has been recently determined is acceptable in our pharmacies. No longer is it clinical. Now you can go to a pharmacy. Walgreens and CVS They'll distribute this. I don't know about the pharmacies here or about Walmart or any of that, but they will distribute these things. Now, make no mistake about this concept. No matter how our media talks about it, no matter how our government talks about it, it's murder, plain and simple. It's not painless. It's gruesome. It's barbaric. It's something 
that was formed in the pits of hell. If I describe the process of what abortion is really like, it's ugly. I, I debated whether I had to say it, but it is so grotesque to think about what people are doing to our children under our law in this enlightened and great country that we live in. And even with the pill, when you take that pill, what it does is it starves the baby. Starves it of nutrients. And yet we don't think about these things. We go about our life. We don't think about them. Don't pray about them. We don't get involved in these issues. And I'm as guilty as you are on this. And not only does this process harm the babies, it harms women physically. That's something I'm not going to tell you. It harms women physically and emotionally and damages them. Some of these women are being deceived about this, this whole process. Some of these are willing participants in it, and they don't care. Of course, one of the grossest things about this whole process is that this is a murdering of black babies. Planned Parenthood was formed by Margaret Sainer, and she was a racist, and she hated black people, and that's why she brought to bear Planned Parenthood. In fact, in New York, more babies are being killed by abortion, murdered, than they are being born, black babies. So it's amazing how our media sanitizes and everything is racist, but for some reason this atrocity is not. So, let's return back to Genesis 9 and just think about what the thought process is and what we should be thinking. So we turn back to Genesis 9 after establishing stipulation regarding animal and human life. Noah and his sons are told to be fruitful and multiply in verse 7. This is repeated in verse 9, but was first stated in God's good creation in 27 through 28. In contrast to the murderer who terminates life in verses 5 through 6, Noah's family is exhorted to propagate life and celebrate life. We're to propagate and celebrate life. Children of all kinds, pre-born or born, are a blessing. Children, including the pre-born, are not a nuisance, an imposition, or to be merely tolerated. Is having children going to change one's life? Saying yes is an understatement. Are children a huge blessing? Yes. But they are a sacred responsibility. The Old Testament and New Testament regard children as one of the greatest blessings bestowed by God. In fact, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, more, uh, the, the more children, the more blessing. Which means I'm more blessed than most of the parents here. Jesus speaks of a mother who experiences the joy of having brought a human being into life. Jesus himself displayed a special fondness for children. When the disciples tried to turn the children away, he rebuked them. And the word that's used there, he strongly rebuked them and took the children up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Now let's just think just very quickly. What can we do? How do we respond to this? Number one, develop a conviction concerning all people as created in the image of God, especially the preborn, and grieve the taking of such life as an assault on the giver of life and on our fellow image bearers. 
This is an implication that's undergirded by the concept of love your neighbor as yourself. Number two, value children. Value children. See them as the way the Bible sees them, as God's blessing. Our children here, our children everywhere. Value them, see them as a blessing. Number three, pray about this issue. Pray for the end of murder of babies, that it will not only be illegal in our country, but also unthinkable. Pray for women who are considering murdering their preborn child. Number three, support pregnancy crisis centers. Support adoption, support foster care, support people that are involved in these kinds of issues. Number four, write your state representative, senator, U.S. representative, senator about this lot, this issue. Listen, government is formed to protect life. That's what their duty is. That's their God-ordained duty is to protect life. In fact, here in this text, as it relates to if you shed a man's blood, so your blood shall be saved, that, that rests with government. Romans chapter 13, they are God's servants to protect life. That's what they're to do. Which leads to number five, never vote for a candidate who does not believe in the sanctity of life. Vote for those who will fight for life and end the Holocaust against our children. Listen, you may, there may be a candidate out there that says they're pro-life, but they say, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to press my views on somebody else. I don't know if we think about how ridiculous that sounds. I'm against murder, but I'm okay if you murder other. If, I'm not going to press my views about you murdering people. I understand that there are really important issues that we need to take in consideration. And some of you all have your pet issues that you think are important. But let me just think about it this way. Where is the logic that if you vote for a person who does not value life, what makes you think they care about your issues? Now, I know that there are politicians out there who may say they're pro-life or, or, or all that kind of stuff, and they're really not. They're just maybe being political and trying to get our vote. You know, at the end of the day, all we, can, all we can go off is what they say. And if you can't vote for a candidate who is pro-life because of whatever issue he is, then just don't vote for either candidate at all. Don't put your name next to somebody who thinks it's okay to murder children. Listen, this is about developing a biblical worldview. And as far as I'm concerned, that if they don't protect life, I wouldn't vote for them to be a dog catcher. They have no business in our government at all. So this is a real issue that we need to be thinking about. It's also a real issue that we need to speak in truth and love to people. Because there are people that are a victim of this, this atrocity. Children that are a victim of it, women that are a victim of it. There is forgiveness for all who come to the cross and repent of their sins and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a place for us to minister to women who have gone through this process. But we need to establish in our mind, in our hearts, developing a biblical worldview and understanding that this is an issue that is so pressing and so important and we need to be having more conversations about this. And I'm going to be honest with you, I have failed on this issue in the last nine years. In fact, in my other churches, did not really put it at the forefront. Now, that doesn't mean that this is something I'm going to be consumed with and talk about all the time. But it is something that we need to be having
conversations about and trying to think biblically about this and trying to do our part in celebrating life and honoring God and doing our biblical prerogative of rescue the innocent who are being murdered, the helpless, the defenseless,